Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. All right, well, we're going to be talking about a question this morning and how to answer a question. I often, uh, I often come across questions, and uh, actually they're questions that I have an answer to, but I don't know how I got to that answer. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. I'm probably, uh, I'm probably not unique in the fact that I have questions like this, but I probably, I might be a little bit more unique in the way that I obsess over them. I get a question in my head and I just have to figure out how does this thing work so that I can arrive at a proper conclusion. And the question we're going to be looking at this morning is this one. What gives life value? What gives life value? You know, at the beginning of the month, uh, you know, over a thousand people marched in the life hike. It's a pro, pro-life hike in Steinbeck here. You probably heard about it. It was on the news. If you'd gone up to pretty much any of those people and said, why, do you be- why are you doing this? They'd say, well, because life has value, whether it's unborn or born, this side of the, the womb or the other, regardless of age, uh, cognitive capacity, physical capacity, Life has value. And if you were to turn around and say, why? You might get a stare. Because it's something that we assume is true, but we don't think about why it is true. And this morning, we want to think about why life has value. And we're going to do it the way that I do it. When I'm looking at questions like this, I go down rabbit trails. Um, and we're going to go on a big rabbit trail today, and you're going to be tempted to, to wonder how I'm going to pull it together at the end, but you just, you be patient. It'll come together, because we're going to learn some great things about the Bible today on the way. But the first thing we're going to talk about is, what is value in the first place? And there's two different kinds of value that we can talk about. There's something you call, call extrinsic value and intrinsic value, all right? And I'll define those words for you. I'll help you understand them. Extrinsic value is value that is given to something by something else. So in other words, um, it might be valuable because of its appearance or because of its how much money it costs and that sort of thing. Extrinsic value of a rock, for example, is very little. If I tried to sell a big boulder, um, probably somebody from Winnipeg would buy it, actually. But most, <laughs> most of the time, a boulder has very little value in and of itself. A boulder, however, becomes extremely valuable as a hiding place from a dinosaur. (laughs) See, they didn't really get it last night either. I I did this because middle school is over, and middle schoolers like dinosaurs, am I right? Yeah. What? (laughs) Don't you make me a liar up here. That's PowerPoint. Actually, I just did it because PowerPoint can do this now, and that's just exciting. But... A boulder, which has no monetary value, suddenly becomes valuable as a hiding place or as a rock to throw at a giant. You see what I mean? If we're talking about the extrinsic value of a person, you might be talking about their talent. So I have certain talents that make me valuable as as an employee at Southland. For example, I'm witty. (laughs) Makes me valuable. But it's not something that's core to who I am. It's extrinsic. It's, it's something from the outside going in, all right? Then we look at, oh, so a good way to think of extrinsic value is to say it is valuable because of. If ever you say that thing has value because of, you're talking about extrinsic value. 
Then we talk about intrinsic value. Intrinsic value is inside the object, inside what we're talking about. For example, let's say I'm walking down the road and I see my friend, Sheldon, in a heap. (laughs) He's the farmer in the choir. And incidentally, kids, this is a little life lesson. Don't put pictures of yourself like this on Facebook. Because people will find them, Photoshop them, and use them in a message. (laughs) Let's say I see Sheldon, my friend. He really is my friend. Lying on the side of the road in deep pain. And I come along, and uh, my friend says to me, should we help him? And I say, well, of course. Yes, certainly we should help him. And then they say, why? And I say, well, just because. It's the right thing to do. And then my friend says, okay, fine. Now, this is it, the thing. When you hear yourself saying, why does something have value? And somebody says, just because it does. That is an indication that you think something has intrinsic value, even if you're not quite sure why. Just because indicates that you believe it has intrinsic value. I'm going to give you two other illustrations. The first one comes from the diamond industry. I learned a lot about diamonds this last week because I was looking up what it means to have value. If I were holding uh, a diamond up here, I would be holding something of great worth in most cases, right? And I learned that there's certain things that are intrinsic to a diamond that make it more valuable, okay? So the size of the diamond certainly helps make it more valuable. And uh, then you have the clarity of a diamond. That's how clear it looks. Um, And you have the coloration of a diamond. Certain colors of diamonds are much more rare than other colors. So a red diamond, ladies, if you have a red diamond ring, you got a keeper is what you got. And I don't mean the ring. Because whoever bought you that red diamond ring bought you an expensive jewel. That's a very expensive thing. But there are other factors that make diamonds valuable as well. For example... If you find a raw diamond out in, the, in a mine or something, it just looks like a hunk of quartz. It doesn't look very valuable. It's not polished. It doesn't have beautiful uh, facets, the little, the little cuts on all sides of it. But if you give it to a master jeweler, if you put it, uh, the diamond in the right hands of the right artist who cuts it properly, that diamond becomes more and more and more valuable. So the artist who's working on the diamond makes it more valuable. In fact, there's been huge diamonds that have been sitting on shelves for years because no jeweler wants to touch that thing for fear of ruining it. And then you also have diamonds that were passed down from uh, kings, and they become valuable. There's one diamond in particular. It's not the biggest. It's yellow in color. It's quite rare for that sake. But it's worth tens of millions of dollars because it was on the ring finger of kings. And it was passed down for, I don't know, it was something like 16 or 1,400 years. It was passed down in the Middle East from different sultans and so, so on. So that will make a diamond um, more valuable as well. But there's another thing that makes it more valuable, and that has how rare it is. How rare it is. And for that, you get an interesting story because diamonds are a lot more common than you think. They're a lot more common than you think. The reason, though, they have such great value today is because of a very interesting thing that happened in the 19th century. If you've ever heard of the De Beers diamond conspiracy, this is what I'm talking about. It's very interesting. In the late 19th century, there were huge diamond deposits that were discovered in Africa, huge ones. In fact, diamonds were so common in this one place in Africa, you could walk down the dry riverbeds and pick them out of the mud. 
So they were extremely common, and it created a big problem for the diamond industry because suddenly the market was flooded with these jewels. That's bad for people who want to make money off them. So there was a company called the De Beers Consolidated Mining Company, and they bought up 90% of all the other companies and 90% of all the mines, the diamond mines in Africa, so that they could control how many of those very numerous diamonds make it into market today. And they did, and they still do. They have a, a gatekeeper that only allows so many diamonds out so that they can artificially make them more rare than they really are. But that wasn't enough. Because they needed a way for people to see diamonds as more valuable than they even were. Because they weren't actually that popular. In 19, and around the 1930s, 1938, only 10% of all engagement rings actually had a diamond in them. Isn't that interesting? Only 10%. So in 1940, a guy by the name of Harry Oppenheimer, he was the, the son of the founder of De Beers, he went to New York and hired a, a marketing company. It was called NWI to help make diamonds the gem of choice. And what they did was they coined a term. One of the copywriters at Ayers coined a term, and he said, a diamond is forever. They also coined the term later, a diamond is a girl's best friend. I was, I, I, somebody yelled that out yesterday and I said, no, that's not what they said. But I found out, no, indeed they did. They coined both terms. A diamond is forever and a diamond is a girl's best friend. And they used the uh, developing movie industry to do that. They put diamonds on the hands of actresses so that everybody who wanted to be famous and beautiful wanted a diamond ring. It was so successful that 50 years later in 1990, 80% of all engagement rings had a diamond in them. That is one of, it's, it's one of the most successful marketing campaigns in modern history. Isn't that fascinating? And everybody's looking at your diamond ring going, eh. <laughs> no, no, it's artificially valuable. So it's, you're in good shape. But you see, there are ways to make things more valuable. But is that what we're talking about when we talk about life? When we talk about life, here, I'm going to show you a picture of some people. You know, you look at these people and you say, do they have value? And you go, well, of course they have value. I mean, look, they're artists. Presumably, we can't see what they're painting. But they, they have talent. They have relationships. They, they seem to be, they seem to have value, Right? What if I were to show you the rest of the picture, though, and now you see that they have a disability? Does the disability reduce their value in any way whatsoever? Not a chance. Because they have an intrinsic value that is common to all human beings. The extrinsic value that they have is the talent that they have. Yeah, they're artists. That's great. They might not actually, the truth is, they might not have value as long-distance runners because they don't have the ability to do that. But their intrinsic value is completely separate from their abilities on earth. So this is what value means. But what is it that gives those people intrinsic value? What is it? And for, here, for that, we need to talk about purpose. Because value is derived from purpose. There are several ways to think about what makes human life valuable. <clears throat> but if you want to truly understand value, you need to understand purpose. What is the purpose of not just your life or mine, which is specific to the individual, but what is the purpose of people in general? 
For what reason did God create human beings? And you know what? To understand that, you need to understand how God works in the world. And to explain how God works in the world, we're going to take a U-turn here. We're going to take a fork in the path. And I want to show you how God has chosen in his sovereignty to work in the world. And it's going to feel disconnected a little bit, but believe me at the end, it's going to make a lot of sense. We're going to go to a story in Daniel. So if I, it was a long story, so I didn't put it up on the screen. So if you have your Bibles, you can pull them out, go to Daniel 4, or if you have your phone, you can read along, or you can just listen. It's fine. Daniel 4 and chapter 4. Uh, in Daniel 4, we, we have already met a king called Nebuchadnezzar. He was the one who uh, ransacked Israel, did, brought all the exiles into Babylon. Uh, right in, Gen, uh, or in Daniel 3, we read about the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And now we're having a story about Daniel. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, Daniel 4 is written in the first person by Nebuchadnezzar. It's, an, it's like a page from his diary. And this is what he says. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. And in fact, he was flourishing in the entire world. He had the largest and most successful empire in all of history. I had a dream, and it frightened me while I was in my bed. The images and visions in my mind alarmed me, so I issued a decree to bring all the wise men of Babylon to me in order that they might make the dream's interpretation known to me. When the diviner priests, mediums, Chaldeans, and astrologers came to me, I told them the dream, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Finally, Daniel, named Belshazzar after the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods was in him, came before me, and I told him the dream. Belshazzar, head of the diviners, because I know that you have the spirit of the holy gods in you and that no mystery puzzles you, explain to me the visions of my dream that I saw and its interpretation. In the visions of my mind, as I was laying in bed, I saw this. There was a tree in the middle of the earth. It great, had great height. It had grew strong. Many birds came to live in it. It had beautiful fruit all around it. Animals came and roosted under it as well. <clears throat> Every creature was fed from it. And then it says this. As I was laying in my bed, I also saw in the visions of my mind an observer, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called out loudly, cut down the tree and chop off its branches, strip its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump with its root in the ground. And then it talks about um, this. It kind of changes from the tree to a, a person. Let his mind be changed from that of a man. That's talking about Nebuchadnezzar and give him the mind of an animal for seven periods of time. This word is by decree of the observers. The matter is a command from the holy ones. This is so that the living will know that the most high is ruler over the kingdoms of men. He gives it to anyone he wants and sets it and sets the lowliest men over it. So what's happening here is fascinating. All sorts of lessons we can learn from this dream, but I want to talk about the person delivering the punishment. Who is this creature called an observer? What on earth is an observer? He was called, it says, this is by decree of the observers, the holy ones. Who are they? They give us an important clue, well, they give us an important answer as to how God works in the world. And the observer is merely an angel. It's a different word for angel. And you see, we miss those words because the Bible uses all sorts of words for angels that we often miss. So they, I'm going to give you a couple of them here. <clears throat> so sometimes the Bible talks about the starry host or the morning stars. And in Job it says, uh, 
that the morning stars shouted for joy at the creation of the world. Okay, so that's a, if you ever read about the starry host, it's often talking about angels, what we call angels. Then you might hear something called the wind. In uh, Psalm 104, verse 3, it says that Yahweh makes the wind his messengers. He makes the winds his messengers. And in the next breath, he says, flames of fire his servants. So the wind and flames of fire are just word pictures to help us understand, or everybody in the ancient world would have understood that it's talking about supernatural beings. Everybody would have understood that. We sometimes miss it because we think it's just being poetic. And then it talks about in Ezekiel, the fiery stones. It says that uh, in Ezekiel, where it's describing in, in code Lucifer, it says, you were a guardian cherub. You walked among the fiery stones. Fiery stones is another word for angels. In fact, when, uh, when it talks about the eyes of heaven or uh, it talks about, you know, they, could, they, they thought that literally those, those lights in heaven were angels. That's what they thought. And then finally, this very interesting phrase, sons of God. And the sons of God is where we want to camp for just a minute. See, the word angel that we use isn't necessarily accurate in all cases, because an angel is a title or a job description. Angel in Greek is angelos, and it simply means messenger. So anybody who brings a message from God to people is an angel. I'm acting as an angel today. Isn't that great? Hopefully I'm a good angel today. But I'm just being a messenger any messenger, a prophet was an angel. In fact, the term was coined by, by, the, by the runners who would take a message from the, the Greek king or commander at the back of the war to the front. They would take it to the front and give commands that way. Those were called angels. They were human beings. An angel is anybody, any creature who brings a message from God. Okay, And we just have made it into this supernatural being. But there's all sorts of other ways to, that the Old Testament and New Testament talk about supernatural beings. For example, you have what's called a seraph. If you have one seraph, it's a seraph. If you have many seraph, it's a seraphim. In Hebrew, if you get an I and an M at the end of the word, that means that you're talking about the plural of the word. So you have one seraph, many seraphim. One cherub, many cherubim. One nephilim. No, one neph, many nephilim, okay? That's how it works. And you have, and these seraphs, or seraphim then, they seem to be angels or supernatural beings that attended to the throne of God. So when Isaiah came into the temple, uh, or when Isaiah was being, uh, was being commissioned as a prophet, as an angel, as a messenger of God, he, the, the seraph came from the throne room, took a coal, and burnt his lips with it, cleansed his lips. That was a seraph. Okay, it seems to be they attend to the throne of God. And then you have very interesting uh, uh, creatures called cherubim. Uh, and the cherubs in the throne room are very curious creatures. They have four faces, they have six wings, they cover themselves with, with, uh, with two, and with two they uh, cover their feet with two, cover, and then they fly with two or something like that. They have six in total. And they're covered with eyes, which probably just means that they sparkled. Like the, uh, it's very creepy when you think about it. I, you know, you read these stories and, and you go, whoa, Beings covered with eyes, blinking in every direction. No, probably it just means that they sparkled because when it talks about eyes, it's talking about stars of heaven. So probably they shimmered like the stars. It's beautiful. But those are actually not describing what they are. 
It is describing what they do. It's describing what they do. And supernatural beings or angels have different classes as well as different job titles. Okay? So I could rightly go to somebody and say, I'm a pastor. That is who I am. But I'm also a human being. And an angel could go to somebody and say, I'm a guardian cherub. But I'm also this. So there's different kinds of angels. And one very powerful kind of angel is called an observer. They're called the sons of God. In fact, all sorts of words are used for them. <clears throat> in, the, in the Hebrew, B'nai Elohim, sons of God. They were the ones that were present in the council room of God at the beginning of Job when the angels came to pre- pre- present themselves there. That was the, uh, the observers right there. And these observers that made up the council of God, they literally were an advisory council. By the way, in some translations, you'll read that they weren't called observers. They were called watchers. Your translation might say that. And later on, they were known as archangels. So archangels are very powerful angels. That's all they are. And in fact, the only, there's only three named angels in scripture, and they are all archangels. One is Gabriel, who delivered the message about uh, the Messiah's birth to Mary. The other is Michael. And then there is Lucifer. Lucifer also came out of this very powerful group of angels. He was privy to the counsel of God. He's very, very powerful. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> in, in the Old Testament, however, they also use a different word for the sons of God. And it's a word you know, but you didn't realize it referred to angels. And it's this word. Elohim. Elohim. And remember, the I am means that it's plural. It means that it's a pl- there's plurality built into it. Now, the word Elohim appears in scriptures over 2,500 times and 2,200 times. It's used as a proper name for God. So you can rightly pray Elohim, help me. Elohim, this. You can address God as Elohim. But when you're addressing God as Elohim, you're actually not using his name. You're using his, a title given to him, like Lord. Okay? Elohim is a title. It's a job description. And there is a chief Elohim whose proper name is Yahweh. But then there is a group called the Elohim who are these sons of God, supernatural beings. And I'm going to show you how you can tell the difference. <clears throat> In Psalm 82, and by the way, there's, there's lots and lots of references I could give. I'm just going to choose one. It says in Psalm 82, verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine assembly. He judges among the gods. How many of you knew that there were other gods in the world? Well, they aren't actually gods. They're very powerful angels. And the ancient people just called them gods, small g. But in Hebrew, this is what it says. Elohim has taken his place in the divine assembly. He, he judges among the Elohim. Isn't that interesting? Elohim has taken his place in the divine assembly. He judges among the Elohim. So how do you know whether we're talking about a proper name for God, singular, God, Elohim, or we're talking about a plural is by the grammar, syntax, sentence structure. And we actually understand that because, well, if you look, it says God takes his place. That's singular. That means we're talking about God. But then when it says he judges among the gods, there is nothing to distinguish that as um, singular, so it's plural. And we have words like this in English. For example, fish. 
I went and I caught a fish today, but I know there were a lot more fish in the river. Fish, fish, singular, plural, same word, and we know whether we're talking about many fish or one fish by the rest of the sentence. Does that make sense? Right? There were many fish in the river, but I only caught one fish today. There were many Elohim in heaven, but I only got to meet with one. <laughs> Elohim, the chief Elohim. Because he is the chief in charge of the divine assembly. He runs the divine assembly, but the divine assembly around him, the council of God, they are also called the Elohim. Now, the Elohim is present in Job. And in fact, in Jeremiah, this is very interesting. In Jeremiah, he talks about the mark of a false prophet. He says a false prophet is a man who has not stood in the council room of God. Because what they understood a prophet to be in the ancient times, in the, in the Old Testament, was somebody, a person who was chosen by God, and he was given privy. He was privy to the conversations that happened in the assembly, the divine assembly or the council room of God. So this human being was probably taken up in his spirit, or he could see it in his mind as a vision. And and then he would come back down to his body to earth and he would tell other people what he had seen. That's what a prophet was. All right? A prophet who is false has not stood in the assembly of the gods. That's what it says in Jeremiah. All right? And so literally, if you were to think about it, if, if Job, uh, if, if God wanted to send a prophet to Job to explain what was going on, he would have chosen a man who would have been privy to that conversation between him and the other angels and Satan. And then that person could have gone down and reported back to Job. That's what a prophet was. Now, why is this important? It's important because these Elohim were and are far more involved with helping Yahweh than we realize today. You see, back in, we, we read Daniel and we read, we gloss over the observers we don't understand, but what they were actually doing there was acting as a judiciary advisory board. God was saying, have you seen Nebuchadnezzar? They say, yes, we've seen him. He says, what do you think we should do with him? Well, let's make him like a wild animal for seven years. God says, that's a great idea, let's do that. And God is the one who carries it out, but he's getting, he's being advised by his counsel. And you think, well, God doesn't need that. And you're right. Of course, God doesn't need that. But I'm not talking about what God needs or doesn't need. What I'm doing is I'm talking about how God chooses to work in the world. And God has chosen to rule and govern the supernatural in a council, in, in conversation with his creatures. And that's very interesting. They show up in another place. They show up right in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible. We all know it, where God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Did you know that that phrase is a phrase of the watchers, of the Elohim? And I'll show you. In Genesis 1, verse 26, this is what it says. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. But it's plural. Let us make man in our image. And you go, well, yeah, that's proof that the Trinity was in the Old Testament. No, it's not. 
It means something different than that. That's, a, that's an acceptable idea, but that it means something different than that actually. And this is why, because if that meant that there was a Trinity, then every single Jew today would believe in the Trinity, but they don't, and they're not stupid. They read Genesis 1, and they say there's plural language. It must mean something other than a trinity. And actually, that's what they believed in the Old Testament as well. And that's so we know that this is actually describing something else. It says, then, it should say, then the gods, the Elohim, said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now, we freak out about that because we go, wait a second. Doesn't that mean that we're made in the image of angels? No, 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 it doesn't mean that. See, people think that... People think that when we talk about the image of God, we're talking about qualities of God. For example, God is, um, uh, he's a free agent, so we have free will. Or he is conscious, therefore we have consciousness. Or he, have a, he has a conscience, therefore we have a conscience. That's not what it means, though. It's talking rather about, it's better to think of it as a verb when we talk about the image of God. There's a, a scholar named Michael Heiser. We have a number of his books in our library. They're very, very good. And he says, we should read the image of God as a verb, as a function, or a job description, rather than a quality that God shares with us. And what does that image of God mean? It means that we have a particular function on earth, a particular function on earth that's ordained. And this doesn't scare me at all because you'll notice that in verse 27, it says, so God created man in his own image. He created them in the image of God and he created them man, man, male and female. So the, the, the group of angels, the council of God, did not do any creating work. All they were saying to God when they said, let us make man in our image, they're saying, let, let's give humankind our same job. We want to share our job description with your new creatures, these human beings. That's what they're saying. And God says, well, that sounds like a great idea. And this points to mankind's purpose. You know, we don't want to gloss over this. This is incredibly important. It's not just a cool idea. This is very interesting and profound because what it means is that God has delegated authority to this very powerful group of angels and they were meant to govern and help rule, manage the cosmos, the supernatural world, the universe, Things that we can't see. They occasionally could be seen, but most of the time they're invisible. But God delegated authority to that group of angels. And then you know what he did? He delegated authority, the job description of being made in the image of God to human beings. That's profound when you think about it. Because we often think, so, uh, think that angels are so incredibly different from us. But they're created beings with a purpose and a function to manage and rule along with God. And we were human beings created in the same function in the image of God to rule the earth under God. And it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden, well, actually on the mountain of God, and the Garden of Eden was outside the mountain of God, where these two worlds would intersect. And when we sinned, we were cast out. And that supernatural combination of the, of the cosmos and the natural was broken. But we still have a command and a function on earth. And in fact, God distinguished human beings and actually made them even more special than angels. See, when, when the angels said, let us make man in our image, then they said what that means. They said, our job is to manage. So let's have these human beings rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock and the earth, and all the creatures that crawl on the earth. 
That's the management piece. And God agreed with it, and he ratified that piece. But you know what? He added a piece first. The piece that he added was this. Be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. That is a piece of our function on earth that angels don't have. Angels cannot create life. They cannot procreate. And that is a a remarkable thing when you think about it. You know, if we so choose, two people a male and a female, can come together and create life. Think about that. That is within our authority to do. We can create life. And I know that God has a hand in it. I know that some people who would like to create life cannot, for all sorts of different reasons. But that is a function and the primary function that God gave to human beings. And the way that I think about it is this. Human beings were given the directive first to create and protect life. There is a life-protecting, creating function to human beings. That is our purpose on earth. And what's also remarkable to me is that God also gave us the ability to end life. Just think about that for a minute. We have the capability to not only create, but end life. That's a lot of power. That's a tremendous amount of power. So to be made in the image of God means that we are his delegated, creative, decision-making authority on earth. We are his representatives on earth. We are literally to image God on earth. It's a function. It's a rule. So then, purpose and value comes from being an image bearer. Remember, we started off by asking what gives life value. Well, there's two ways to look at it. Because of our status as image bearers, there's, there's sort of an individual purpose that I'm given. For example, my, my job, the job that God has commissioned me for and said, I want you to do this, that is singular to me, my purpose is to teach, and I'm supposed to be a teacher, I'm supposed to use a teaching gift, and I'm also supposed to be a foster parent. I know without a shadow of a doubt that God has called me and my family to take in children from hard places. I know that. That is our purpose. But there is a more general purpose that both of those singular purposes fit under, and it's this. We're to manage, we're to create life and manage creation. The two different ways of thinking about purpose reflect both intrinsic value, I have value because of my specific role in the kingdom of God, and intrinsic value, because I have value simply because I share in humanity's role in creating, protecting, and managing life on earth. So the image of God, a sign of delegated authority, is what gives human beings value. This is what distinguishes us from all other creatures on earth. No other creature has the image of God. You know what that means? No other creature has our purpose. No other creature has our function. And purpose is what denotes or or what shows that you have value. So it shows it. Even this week, I was listening to a podcast, and I heard again a quote by an atheist who says there is no... There is no difference between a human creature and an animal. Wrong! Dogs were created for a different purpose than human beings. We have immeasurably more value because we have an immeasurably greater purpose. It's completely different, and it comes down to the image of God upon us. 
And then somebody might say, though, okay, well, what value then does a severely disabled person have? What value does a disabled person have? They can't do anything. Everything is done for them. Maybe they're nonverbal. They're not mobile. Can't even use the washroom by themselves. What is that person? How does that person image God? You know what? I have two things to say to that. First thing I have to say is, think harder. And you know what? I say think harder, and I mean it. Because right now, right now, around the world, people are making decisions because they have not thought hard enough about this. There was a story that came out of the UK this week about how a judge granted the right for a a mentally delayed young woman to have an abortion because she thought at the age of a six to nine-year-old and could not make that decision for herself, and it would be better for that child to be aborted than to be born. Because of the mental capacity, the, the cognitive capacity of a human being, we're going to end another. So when I say think hard about this, I mean think hard about it because there's a lot of people who are not thinking hard enough about it right now and they're making absolutely wicked decisions. The second thing I want to say to that, though, is to read just a very short passage of Scripture to you that will put it all to rest. Jesus talks about this in John 4, or pardon me, John 9, verse 1 to 4. As he, Jesus, was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples questioned him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus responded, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. Now listen to this. His, so that God's purpose might be displayed in him. And, he's, and then Jesus goes on to say, We must do the works or the purpose of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. We could very rightly read it like this. As Jesus was passing by, he saw a man in a wheelchair who could not take care of himself, bath himself, or speak. He had been that way since birth, and the disciples questioned him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born in this state? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents sinned. This came about so that God's purpose could be seen on earth. You could read it that way. And you see, there's two ways to think about purpose again. You have to get this straight. It is true that that person cannot do in the world. They cannot do but it doesn't mean that they can't be used in the world. You know, if you have a hammer, a hammer that just sits on a table, what good is it? It's just a tool sitting there. But the hammer in the hands of a carpenter will construct a house. He'll make a beautiful table for you because he knows how to use that hammer, that tool, to make something out of it. That is the purpose of the hammer, to be used in the hands of a carpenter. And there is a great carpenter that we can read about in Scripture. And he can use anybody he wants as his tool to accomplish his purpose on earth. And if you want to know the purpose of those who have severe uh, handicaps, disabilities, it is to form us into the creatures that God wants us to be. So you can't say that a person with a severe disability or who has lost their ability to remember or to think or who now needs to be taken care of in a a home for the elderly, you cannot say that they have outlived their purpose because you can't outlive the image of God. You either have it or you don't. And that means you're either human or you're not. 
So, so long as you are alive and breathing, the image of God remains on you. You have purpose in the world and you have great value because of that purpose. Now, via, then when we talk about this, I want to help us think even differently about sin because violation of purpose then is, is sin. When we violate purpose, we actually, violate, we actually are sinning. Think about it. If I tell my kids to do something, some chore this weekend, my son has to mow the lawn. His entire purpose in life this weekend is to get that lawn mowed. <laughs> not to do anything else. And if he does not do his purpose, he will have sinned because he'll have been disobedient. Is that not true? Oh, you better believe it's true. <laughs> so when I get home from church this morning, his Sabbath was yesterday. Today he mows. The same is true for God. If God tells us to do something and we do not do it, it's sin. We violated our purpose. If I do not have foster children, I am sinning. You're not sinning because God hasn't asked you to have foster children, unless he has, and then you're sinning. But God has asked me to do that, and that is the intrinsic value that I have in the world. But there is another part of me that is intrinsic. Look, um, what did God tell Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply and manage creation. Now, what I'm not saying is that if you don't have children, you're being sinful. That's ridiculous. There's a deeper principle than that. But what I am certainly saying is that if you violate life, you have crossed the supernatural red line. Abortion is the one that gives us the most vivid illustration. If the very first command that your creator gives you is regarding the creation of life, then you had better believe that if you now end an unborn baby's life, you have committed a great sin. Abortion is absolutely wicked because it says that the person is not even worth keeping alive to realize their extrinsic purpose. It violates their intrinsic purpose by ending their life, and it doesn't even give them the pleasure of realizing the gifts that they're going to offer to the world, it absolutely violates everything. And so not only is violating purpose a sin, it absolutely disrespects value. It disrespects, it disregards value when we violate purpose. And you know what I know? I know that people are longing for two things. They are longing for purpose and they are desperate for value and they don't understand that every time they sin, they lose both. Every time you sin, you lose both your purpose in the world and you disrespect your own value. But here is the great news of the gospel. God is not interested in leaving his people as broken imagers. He is intimately interested in restoring his image on your life. And here I think we get it wrong often as Christians. I think we think that the gospel is meant to describe our brokenness, and we stop there. The gospel not only describes our brokenness, it prescribes the way to become whole again. And the second part is far more important than the first part. It's far more important to learn how to become whole again than just to realize that you're broken. Most people don't need help understanding that they're broken. They recognize it. And if what I'm saying is true here, then part of 
restoring a broken image is for somebody to realize their purpose again. Now, anybody who wants to realize their purpose again and restore their purpose and restore a broken image, they need to understand that the first responsibility falls to them. And this is exactly what Pastor Ray has been preaching about the last three times he preached. How does a single person restore their own broken image? And it's to put off. He talked about that at length, so I'm not going to. All I want to do is here connect what he was saying to the image of God. Because in Colossians 3, verse 5 to 6, it says this. Now, first of all, it lists a big, long put-to-death list. Put to death sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. And then he talks about, you must also put away the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, filthy language from your mouth. And then he says this, though. Once you've put those to death, he says one more thing. Do not lie to each other, since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. The more you put off your old life, the more that knowledge renews you and you restore the image of your creator in your life. You know what that means? It means that you've restored your purpose in life. It means that you have restored value in life. Because you have put to death something and put on something else, you've been renewed. Incredible. It's just absolutely incredible. And nobody can do it for you. I'm sorry, I don't, it doesn't matter how broken you are. I feel bad that you're broken, but I cannot take a step for somebody who's broken. Every broken person has an individual responsibility to put off. They have to own it. They have to make a step towards God. What we're doing when we confess our sins is acknowledging that we violated the very purpose for which we were created. And by doing that, we're restored to our former calling and we feel this rush of value in our life again. And you know what? I can think of no better, uh, I can think of no better example than, than Jonah. Jonah, when you really sit down and think about it, he messes with your head. Jonah was given a, a purpose in life. He was supposed to be a messenger, an angel, to the, to the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is over here in Iran. He went to literally the farthest place in the known world away from where he was supposed to be. He went to Tarshish, which is in Spain. And past Spain is the Atlantic Ocean, and they had no idea what laid beyond that for another many thousand years. He went as far from his mission and calling in life as he could possibly get. As far as possible. And on the way, you know that there were severe consequences. This huge storm rolled up, and now this ship full of sailors that's given him a taxi ride across the Mediterranean is fearful. And so what are they doing? They're calling out to their own gods, oh Zeus, oh Jupiter, oh Pluto, please help us. They're, they're pagans. They're offering sacrifices to their gods, these gods who cannot help them. And the storm continues. Now they're throwing over all their cargo to the valuable goods that they're meant to ship, and they're trying to save themselves. And, and Jonah's like, guys, I think we have a problem, and the problem is me. And the sailors go, no, no, it could not be possibly you. You're a good Jewish boy. He says, no, I really think this is a problem. Well, he said, well, how are we going to settle this? Let's gamble. Because that's how you settle a good dispute. <laughs> and so they gambled. Literally, they chose straws. Guess who got the short straw? Jonah. Even the fates agreed. <laughs> you are responsible for this. And you know what they said as they were pitching him overboard? They said, Lord, uh, they said, please do not let us be responsible for the death of an innocent man. They pitched him overboard. The sea grew calm. 
The next thing that happens is not the whale or the fish or the sea monster. You know what the next thing that happens is? The next thing that happens is this. And the sailors worshipped the God of Jonah. An entire ship of sailors was saved because the moment that Jonah chose obedience, he was used again. Now, there were severe consequences for his sin. So don't think that this is an excuse to just go and sin as far as you can because as soon as you choose obedience, God will begin to use you again. That's a dangerous way to live. And Jonah was swallowed by a whale, and that really sucks. (laughs) So don't push God's buttons. But all I'm saying is you are not so broken that you're more broken and disobedient than Jonah. You're no no more broken than I am. And the moment that us in our brokenness choose to be obedient again is the instant that God will choose to use us again. The instant. It does not matter if you are one of the people who has done the unthinkable and ended an unborn life. It does not matter. You are very broken. You have done something that will have serious consequences. But you know what the problem is? I think in the church, we've spent far too much time talking about your sin and not enough about how God wants to restore your brokenness. And I say that because our job as a church, we have a corporate responsibility also to help the broken. Do you know what the next verse says after that verse of putting off? It immediately swings around and talks to those who have already done it. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's been mended together. The old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Everything is from God who reconciled himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God gave it to us. He said, you were very broken, but I have made you a new creation, and now you're so great and so new that I'm going to turn around and help and get you to help other people become healed. But this is how you're not going to do it. You're not going to do it by counting their trespasses against them. Because Jesus says immediately after how we've been restored to a new new creation, all this stuff, not, he says, but not counting their trespasses against them. And you know what? If God did not count his, our trespasses against us when he renewed his image on us, then we best, we best be careful about doing that with others. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Now, I want to say something, and I want to be very clear about this. I am not saying that we do not confess our sins and spend time in repentance and that we should not be a church that is marked by holiness in the world. I am not saying that for an instant. For goodness sakes, James says that. James says, if any of you sees, uh, if, if any among you strays from the truth and somebody from you turns him back, let him know that whoever turns a, a sinner back from the error of his ways will, will cover a multitude of sins and save his life from death. So I'm not even saying that we shouldn't go to somebody and tell them the life that you're living is sinful. You should turn from it. I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is this. Compulsion never works. So when we go to someone and we help them to see their own brokenness, it's like helping them understand that they're sick and that they need a doctor. It's not for the purpose of counting their sins against them. That's not it at all. We identify in their brokenness. It's to invite them into a relationship with the greatest friend of sinners there is. That's the reason we point out their sin. Because there's a better way and they don't know it. It's compassion. You know, I have friends. You know, I understand that many years ago this sort of thing was done often. But I've only been here 13 years. 
at Southland. And in the last 13 years, this story happened. Two of my friends, while they were in high school, got pregnant. They were not walking with Jesus at the time. And when that was discovered, they were put in front of a bunch of Christians to read an apology for what they had done. How on earth does that restore a broken image? You know, we say we care about unborn lives. Now think about this. How many of you, I think I should not make it about you, I should make it about me. I wonder if the fear of public humiliation would not be greater than the shame of a private abortion. I wonder if the the fear, the shame of public humiliation would not be greater than the fear and the pain of a private abortion. At least that way nobody knows. Otherwise, everybody... You see, the church has gotten this thing wrong in the past, and we cannot do that anymore. We can't say that we love the unborn child and not embrace the person who's wrestling with the, with the decision to give them up. And we cannot be people who point out time and time again what wrong they've done and not help them meet the great healer when the unthinkable has happened. Friends, I have done things that if God had not forgiven me, I don't know where I would have been. My life would be over. Nobody is less broken than their neighbor. We are all in varying degrees of brokenness. And my dream is that for a church like us, with so much potential, that we would be known as a hospital for those who are scarred and broken, and that when they come here, you know what we would do? We would roll up our sleeves and show them, look, this is where I used to be scarred. Let me show you to the, let me, let me introduce you to the doctor that healed me. Amen. You understand what I'm saying? Amen. I wish that this place was so filled with broken people that we didn't know what to do with ourselves. Well, it is. You're just well behaved. <laughs> I wish trickier, more broken people were here. Because I believe, you know, in the Garden of Eden, God said, be fruitful and multiply. What that means is create life. But you know what? He was not only talking about physical life. The verse says we are his ambassadors on earth. That means we reflect him. We represent him. We still have the same calling to give life to humanity. And that might be emotional hope, spiritual life, physical healing. It could be any of those things. But we still have the same calling as we did in Eden. In fact, we have it now only in spades because Jesus has made a way and shown us how to be made whole. We actually have knowledge of how to help people become whole again. It's incredible, and we cannot keep it to ourselves. I found a song this week as I was preparing. It's a song, I think, that reflects what I wish our response would be to a message like this. So Zach's going to come up with the worship team, and they're going to sing a song. And then after that, I'm going, to, I'm going to come up and close in prayer. But as you listen, reflect on your own brokenness and ask yourself, what will your response be if today somebody who is much harder to love than those who are around you comes up to you and needs that from 
a family member in this church. scars I try to hide every wound a story I have cried you always love me it never ends cause you are not an ordinary friend what I thought would take me under has led me back to you every time that I feel that I'm falling apart I give thanks for a broken heart you never weary my complaints believe in me when I am losing faith and what is shattered you will mend cause you are not an ordinary friend every battle leaves us fragile and fear comes in the night Though the weight of this suffering may never depart I give thanks for a broken heart oh. And you're where I'm safe Covering the moments where I break You never fight You just defend You've been the most extraordinary friend And I will live forever You're
I suspect that there are people who don't believe me, who say, no, I am far too broken to be used by God, and you're wrong. And if you have ever been told that by a Christian, then I apologize on their behalf. But you in the kingdom of God have a purpose and value that you do not even recognize. And I know that. And by the way, if you're brokenhearted, you're in, that is a privileged position to be in because Psalm 34 says that Jesus is near. God is near the brokenhearted. He's very close, and I know that from experience. My most broken moment in life came when I was 20 years old on this dark summer night outside a church in Texas when I broke down, and I had never broken down so hard in my life over my own brokenness. And there was a man who came, and he was a pastor, and he gave me a hug. And the reason I say I've never... I didn't know that I was so close to God, but he told me that before he was worshiping in the auditorium, before he saw me leave... He said he had been worshiping. He had imagined that Jesus was beside him. And then suddenly Jesus stepped into him. And he didn't understand why God would have given him that picture. And he said, so when I was hugging you, I understood. I was hugging you with the arms of Jesus. You do not know the healing that comes if you will hug those who are brokenhearted. I'm telling you, there is nobody so far from God that God cannot begin to use them this moment should you so choose. Father, I pray that your amazing love would wash over us, that you remove the doubts of the skeptic, that for just one moment you take away the pain of the brokenhearted, the grief of the grieving, and they would be able to see you as you really are, the greatest friend of sinners, the Lord of the universe, the one who restores our broken image. Pray these things in your name. Amen.